pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I need you to be a minister for a moment and find somebody sit, sitting in your general vicinity. Look them dead in the eyes if they owe you $20. And tell them, neighbor, whatever you do, keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. It's hard to keep pushing in the world that we're living in right now. How is one supposed to find serenity and sanity and strength in the world we live in right now? What is up, y'all? Welcome back to Start the Ego Feed the Soul. I'm your host, Nico Barraza, and excited to be back with this week's guest. But before we get going, I want to ask all of you out there, if you haven't left Start the Ego Feed the Soul, a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, and a five-star review on Spotify podcast, please pause the show right now. Go do so. If you're driving, don't worry about it, but make a mental note that when you stop, please leave the show a five-star written review on both Apple and Spotify podcast. It really helps the show get up in the rankings and get into more eyes and ears. And it's a free way you can give back if you like the content and you like the interviews that I'm hosting here. Also, I have a couple new pieces of gear launching within the next couple of weeks here on www.nicobarraza.com through the Star of the Ego Feed the Soul shop. If you want some swag and you want to support the show monetarily, you can go buy a t-shirt or a sticker or a bottle or something. Um, make sure if you buy something, tag me in on social media so I can share it. And as always, I appreciate the support and appreciate you all being here so much. And if you want to work with me one-on-one, head over to the website as well too, and you can inquire that way. So my guest this week is Kiana Reeves. She is a somatic sex educator, teacher of embodiment and intimacy, holistic pelvic health practitioner, and a doula. She's also a mom of two. And Kiana has a pretty awesome Instagram um, where she talks a lot about sexual intimacy and the continuation of building sexual health and intimacy in a long-term partnership. Uh, she uses her current partner as an example, and some of their videos are just very heartwarming and touching. And we have an incredible conversation over a lot of different topics. We obviously talk about sex and sexual intimacy. We talk about modern dating and we talk about dating apps. We get into just how we relate to our own trauma, our own background, and how we bring that into a relationship and into the dating phase. And it's a it's an awesome conversation. Uh, we obviously talk about it both from a male and female perspective, which I think is very valuable to all you listeners out there, because sometimes you only get one or the other on, on interviews like this. So I just want to say thank you to Kiana for coming on the show and sharing an hour with me. Absolutely brilliant conversation. I would love to have her back on and ask even more questions. And if you want to go check her out, she is Kiana.Reeves. Don't confuse that with Keanu Reeves. It's Kiana, K-I-A-N-A dot Reeves uh, on Instagram. And you can also check her out at www.kianareeves.com uh, if you want to check her website out too. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Kiana, thank you so much for joining me on Start of the Ego, Feed the Soul. Um, I can't remember exactly how I came across your Instagram account, but probably through a lot of different mutual follows. And um, I just got to say, like, I love the the real humble content around sex and intimacy and partnership, among a lot of other things, because I feel like a lot of times on social media, you know, it, it's it's quite easy to sell 
sort of healthy sex, but I think we often lose that deep connection part of it that so many people are yearning for because speaking from my, from my own experience, you can go out and have a lot of sex and not have any connection, right. And not have any intimacy. Um, and I think that, that your, your account really sort of embodies that connectivity between a sexual experience and that the sexual side of being human being, which is a huge part of how we relate to each other too. And so first I just want to acknowledge, like, thank you for your work. It's been, you know, awesome to follow it and, and it's uh, the energy and the humility behind it is palpable. So thanks for being here and joining me. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's so many different ways we could start. And I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about your background first to kind of set the stage. So uh, you're a somatic sex educator, teacher of embodiment and intimacy. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into doing the work you do? Yeah, it's, you know, what you were speaking to just before actually is so interesting because I started out in the world of birth work and I was a doula for over a decade. And that really was like my first teaching in embodiment because birth is the most embodied experience, I think, any experience we can have in our lifetime. Um, and from there, I got very interested in how the body, the sexuality, the relationship to our own eroticism changes after motherhood. And that's what took me into this realm of sexuality and eroticism and understanding. And I initially I trained as a sexological body worker and um, was working with a few incredible teachers in the realms of intravaginal pelvic care and nervous system work. And it was very much what you were talking about. It's like pleasure focused and it's great sex focused. And I love that about the world, you know, like getting into um, sex education is like very much focused and empowering on pleasure and helping people understand their bodies, how to have great sex, et cetera. Sometimes it can be the world of technique. Um, and when you go into the world of somatic sex education, it's much more body-based and it's informed by the nervous system. It's informed by sensation. And all of that was beautiful, but an element that felt really missing for me was kind of this heart of connection. How do we bring the pleasure and bring our experience and, you know, bring everything that we're learning about ourselves, but really like at the heart of what we want in our sex lives is deep intimacy. And so for the last five years now, I've been in the realms of intimacy and embodiment and sexual polarity and have found this nice meld between the anatomical, biological, you know, the technique aspect, the body aspect, yeah. and then the emotional aspects, the yeah. heart aspect and the spiritual aspect that, you know, great sex actually yep. comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, great sex, I mean, I think a lot of people can agree with this, but I mean, perhaps if you haven't experienced sort of that, that deep soul connection with someone and had sex with them, I think like bringing spirituality into this is a requisite because it is sort of transcendent upon a lot of like other experiences we have as human beings right here. And one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, I feel like we have like this, you know, if you look at the the history of humanity, we have like these different Renaissance periods, right? Where we seem to be very pragmatic and logical and then something happens like a big crash. And then we become like, you know, very artistic again. And we start to sexually explore. We start to, you know, you have these like, you know, different things. And I feel like we're sort of in this redefining right now, right? Um, this sort of energy in the world. But I think, you know, we have, you know, consciousness, if we tap into it, allows us to sort of keep ourselves honest. And I think in a lot of, in a lot of this sort of growth experience, we can get lost 
in the idea of change and not understand that like, you know, we have to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Right. And so I think with all the sexual oppression that's gone on for so long, a lot of times the the pendulum can swing all the way back. And then you have sort of, you know, what I've termed, at least when I work with clients and even with my own personal life too, is like where we use sort of the guise of, of sexual openness or sexual exploration to hide from growth, to hide from intimacy, because merely it's just like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of losing myself in this, although I'm going to say that this is like me connecting. Right. And I'm curious because you work so deeply in this line of work. How do you understand the line for oneself, right? Like, like speaking from an individual, how do I look at like, you know, how I'm engaging in sex, how I'm engaging in connection or, or in, in dating or in partnership and know that like my sex or my sexual experiences are really, I guess, empowering me to have deeper, like more rooted connections versus just like the quick scoop of ice cream that like makes me feel better for 15 minutes, but then I feel awful after. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a prioritization of needs and understanding what you're really wanting out of a sexual experience and sexual connection and how meaningful it is to you. Um, it's also an act of, I think like the bravest act here is like of decompartmentalizing our sexual experiences because a lot of people, like I get asked this question a lot, like how do I feel good after like a casual hookup? And I, yep. I don't believe hookups can be casual. I mean, that's going to be annoying to a lot of people, but like, what do we mean by casual? You know, casual for some people is just mm. meaning like lack of relational structure and that's fine. But if you're going into like the deepest physical vulnerable experience that the body can have a level of closeness that is like only paralleled, you know, basically by having children, you know, like, like someone's body so close to yours, sharing fluids, sharing breath, sharing like such deep nudity of our bodies. And then coming out of it and saying like, it was casual. You are compartmentalizing it somewhere in your body. So I absolutely think sex can be fun, playful Mm. for one night only for two hours only. You might not even know the person, but if you're not willing to go in and be like the most present bring the most presence, bring the most depth, bring the most heart you've ever brought, then like, why are you doing it? Maybe just for pleasure. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. But that's a little bit of what you were asking about is like, what's the Mm -hmm. purpose and the intent? Is it, if it's to get off, that's fine, but know that that's your purpose. But if you're looking for intimacy and connection and you're going into a casual experience, you're, you're actually like having two different purposes that are not going to meet in the middle of what your heart actually is wanting. So Mm. Yeah, I think I think I define it somewhat similar to I think that I guess I use the term casual sex when the end goal is not relational in the sense where it's not like a long term relational goal. Right. It's not a dating phase. So so I still feel like casual sex that's healthy sex is still connected sex. Right. It's not like you're not throwing yourself away. You're not throwing someone else away. You're still valuing your time, your presence, your body, your spirit, your soul and the other persons or multiple people, whoever you're sleeping with. Right. But I think that now we live in a culture where we live in a culture with transactional sex where it's like, well, I just want to sort of get off to, you know, release, feel de-stressed. Right. Which is I'm not demonizing because that's that's a part of sex as well, too. But I think 
just like we can stare at an iPhone and scroll through millions of different self-help accounts and never really truly embody it and take it into the real world outside of technology, so can we do that with sex as well too, right? And if we look at the proliferation of pornography, like I've spoken about that a lot on the show and how it's influenced our intimacy and sex for men and women. Like I even even the first time I was exposed to porn, I think I was like 12 years old, right? And that that instance alone uh, changed my perspective on sex until like I started to read and understand more about it as a, as a younger man growing up, because I was never, it was really never talked about. It's not talked about in a lot of households, right? If you go to, you know, sex education at Catholic school, well, let me tell you, it's, it's fucking dismal. You know what I mean? Um, so, so I think that I have to agree with you. Like, I think that, you know, I guess I use the term casual cause I can't think of a better term, especially with clients and even with myself. Um, but it's not devoid of connection. And I think a lot of people, they, and I see this on a lot with, with clients on dating apps, like they start to demonize the idea of, of having a one at sand or, or sleeping with someone. And I'm like, we, first of all, if we need to stop demonizing people's like sexual desires and what they want to do. But I think that th- that does not have to be devoid of connection or devoid of expansion either, just because the end goal isn't to, you know, be with this person for the rest of eternity. You know, I think that that it's not it's not necessarily the casual part of it it's the disconnection and i think behind that lies the deeper root of intention which is what you just brought up well and i I think you bring up a great point it's like why do we go in feeling like we need to be slightly disconnected and it's because we don't know how to deal with or we're assuming that there's going to be feelings that come after that we don't want to deal with and so there's this layer of yep. of protection, which actually speaks to the depth that sexual connection requires of us. Like, yes, like mm-hmm. go fuck whoever you want and love whoever you want, but do it with love and do it with the deepest amount of connection you can and be responsible. Like do it with the then the deepest amount of care for the other person's heart, for your own yep. heart. You know, and that's where we are not trained. Yeah. And so people are just like, oh, thanks, bye. You know, <laughs> well, I think it takes a pretty hefty amount of emotional intelligence to be able to do that because a lot of times when we have attachment issues or codependency issues or things like that, having sex immediately, we're just, we say, oh yeah, we can just, we, we don't, we're not going to attach, but then boom, after it's like immediately I start to, because I've, I've opened myself to feel vulnerable. So I feel attached to this person, even if I don't even know them, you know, and that brings me full circle to this question I wanted to ask you, which is the modern process of dating, well, it's also the traditional process. It seems to be like a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to date one person at a time. And I don't mean like exclusivity. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only dating this one person after I've got to know them for six months. I mean like, well, I swipe right on this person. I met this person at a coffee shop. So I'm only going to go on dates with them. And that used to be my, that used to be my own personal perspective. And then once I started to, to do that and to understand that, wait a minute, I don't, if I'm going on dates with a stranger and I don't know anything about them and I shut off all the other possibilities immediately i'm sort of giving exclusivity to someone i don't know it all yet and so now in my mind i'm reframing that like actually the process of dating should be you should go date people not just a person and then when you get to a certain thing within yourself and you say hey i know this person well enough i've spent a couple months with them right we're on the same page then you can both talk about being exclusive but the process of dating is just that dating people not just a person or but if you're spending time with just a person, then it becomes a relationship. Um, at least when I'm talking monogamously, right? I mean, there's a lot of different facets of this in the relational world and health space. But I'm curious, do you think that our, like the way we date, I guess, and I'm speaking of Western culture, do you think that needs to evolve? Do you see that evolving with sort of intimacy and with how we view sex in the relationship? 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's evolving whether we like it or not because of the online dating landscape and how people are finding each other. You know, we used to find each other in like social situations and the the public commons and through friends. And there's just as much as we still gather, there's less gathering and there's less in-person connection. So I, I do think that online dating like requires us because what it does, it's not like you walk into a party and start up a friendship with someone and then maybe decide to go, you know, hang out a bunch. You're actually like specifically saying out of a, these pool of people, I choose you to potentially have a romantic connection with. And because it already then has that assumption that there might be assumed relational connection, um, it puts an interesting pressure on it. It puts an interesting lens on it that we're kind of looking through and assessing this person through. And so I think it's really smart, especially if you've just gone on a few dates. You know, I'd say like one to three dates you definitely know if you're going to continue on with someone. At least I I do. Maybe not everybody. But if it's within that do, one to three date framework. So let me ask a question right there, though. So for, from that one to three dates, do you think then like someone should just date that one person? Or do you think that they should continuously date other people until there's, let's say, enough enough understanding that like, okay, this person and I are compatible enough at a base level where we should you know, be exclusive. Yeah. I, I think it's situational. You know, if like one day I go yep. on with someone and I, we have tea and then the next date we have like dinner versus I go on a first date with someone we end up like making out and the next one we end up sleeping together or whatever. Like they're so drastically different. I do think it's situational. I think it also depends on the level of connection you feel with someone. Like if you have a really strong connection with someone and you can also feel that they're very strongly connected to you and you're both seeking relationship, I would talk about it immediately. Like like really the name of the game here is transparency. It's like, Hey, we've gone on three dates. I really like you. This is what I'm looking for long-term, you know, in my life, I'm open to relationship. And for the next little bit, I need to continue staying expansive and I might continue to see other people. And like, I totally encourage you to do that too, until we come to a place where like, yeah, we're in or whatever it is, but like transparency feels good for everyone, you know? Absolutely. No, that, that makes sense to me. And I think, I think, you know, sometimes I guess, you know, many folks can't necessarily handle the honesty of someone else where I think that's part of the work of being in counseling and therapy is like, you know, when someone tells you that, Hey, they're, they're looking to move slower in committing to someone or being exclusive or they're dating multiple people, you know, until they find someone that they, I think for some people, if they were to sleep with that person or, you know, feel, feel connection, I guess, before the the other person they're sleeping with i sometimes there can be there can be that buildup of like you know resentment already before you even know somebody because you're like well why isn't this person picking me you know why am i worthy or being chosen and i think that that's part of that emotional intelligence is is knowing and understanding that you're worthy of being chosen if someone isn't like picking you it's not necessarily something that's it shouldn't some it shouldn't be something that's going to immediately just make you feel awful like we all have preferences and we're all trying to figure out our way of being in the world and i think as i've tried to work on my own emotional maturity especially with the work i'm in it's about being healthily detached from the outcome but present and rooted in the experience right and i think that like 
when I view it like that, for some reason, it's like I, I care deeply about the time I'm spending with each person or an individual, but I am a realist knowing that at any time someone can choose not to be in a relationship or something can happen right to one of us. And I think because of that, it makes like the weight less. So when someone's like, yeah, I'm not feeling this, like I'm not choosing this, you know, which is, it's okay. Like, I think, I think five years ago, even I would be so attached to the idea of like, this is my person. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with someone that I couldn't fathom not being chosen. It would actually be sort of a, a rock thrown at my identity, right? But lose a piece of self in that process. And I think a lot of people can, can understand that sentiment, you know, and I, I view that now back to the dating world where it's like, well, we so quickly can get attached to someone, you know, if we have connection and it's like, okay, well, why are we being attached, right? Like, are we attached because we're looking to fill a hole inside of us with somebody else that we haven't worked on, you know, rooting by ourselves? Because if that's the case, then, no matter how much intimacy someone shows you, they're not going to repair that. That's our work as an individual to do. And we come into the relationship to share that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think, um, I mean, what's coming up for me here is like just my own dating history and where it's felt best for me is like, I'm, if I'm really clear on my needs and what I need, early on in the dating stages, then it's my responsibility to hold myself to that. But also if I've shared that with the other person, it's, I think, respectful and of the most integrity to hold that for each other. For example, like I really, um, if I feel a really strong connection to someone and I know that I want to sleep with them, but they're sleeping with other people. That's really hard for me. Like my heart is too sensitive and my, my body, my emotions too sensitive to go to that place. So if I know that they are dating someone, like I did this with my partner, actually early on, we, we took a while to sleep together. I like took my time because I knew I like, I really liked him and I knew all of my emotions would come up, especially if I slept with him. And so before we slept together, we spent a lot of time together. And then when we decided to do that, I said, look, if we're sleeping together, I need to know that you're not sleeping with anyone else. That's like, mm. that was my need. I'm fine continuing on not sleeping together. But if we step into that phase, like I need, I need to be the only person while we figure out like what's next for us. And that's just me. If he had been like, yeah, but that's not, you know, what I'm asking. He actually did say like, I'm not asking that of you. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but like, that's what I need. Um, and then it becomes a conversation about what the two people are comfortable with. Like maybe you don't sleep together for a while. You spend more time together. There's so much in between, you know, intimacy and sex that can be explored. But I do think this is a generalization, but I do think women and people who are more like feminine in their emotional body, when it comes to sex, there's a lot more hooks, even just chemically for us, like oxytocin gets released. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the chemical of bonding. When we experience deep sexual pleasure and orgasm, that's the chemical that makes us go like, oh, this, this person's familiar. This person's like close to us. And so it's a little, it's hard sometimes for our bodies to separate those those experiences, even if mentally we're compartmentalizing it and going like, yeah, I know our agreement it's fine, but our bodies are like, actually, no. And that's what I'm talking about with needs. It's like, you have to be intelligent, not just with what your mind needs, but with what your heart needs. And we don't talk a lot about that 
in the sex world. Like, what does my heart need? Because in the permission to explore sexual pleasure and in the permission to be a sexual culture and society, you kind of have to, we've had to take the significance of sex out a little bit to make that okay, right? Because if Mm -hmm. sex is actually very emotionally significant, then it makes the stakes higher. And so I think there's a place where we can blend the two. Like, yeah, maybe the emotional stakes are high for some people and that's totally okay to acknowledge, be clear on your needs. And it's totally okay to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I think that, you know, even when we talk about sexual experience, like there's experience with intimacy, but then also experiencing having sex and a lot of times you get better at doing something the more you have it. Not all the time. I'm not saying like people have tons and tons of sex or better at sex, but I think that like a lot of people like they repress themselves sexually because they don't want to seem like they're just having casual sex. And so they repress certain experiences. And speaking personally, like I, I won't connect with someone that isn't in her sexual power. It just isn't, it's just not sexy to me, you know? And it's not, it's not a judgment on anyone that isn't, isn't there yet. But I think that going through the growth that I've gone through, like, it's just, it's not attractive. It's not a turn on, you know, I think one of the, one of the videos you just posted about pussy magic, I thought was incredible. And I want to play it in a, in a second here and maybe we can talk about it, but really it was just about someone being in their own sexual power is really the premise of what you were talking about. And, and you were speaking at it from a, a female perspective, but this ha- happens with men too. Right. Um, and I think that it, uh, you can feel that energy when, when you're in that, when you're comfortable in your own body, when you're able to let completely loose and have like a completely full orgasm. That's not like, uh, connected to self-judgment or self-loathing or childhood trauma when you actually have that experience it's it's a lot different of an experience especially when you have it with someone that you deeply love right um, and I think that those are the sexual experiences I'm personally looking for and I think you know being an intuitive person I, I can like sense even when talking to someone for like five to ten minutes honestly looking in their eyes like looking at their body language kind of understand if they're there, right? I don't even have to be naked with them. I can be in the same room with them and, and understand, you know? And again, this is not a judgment thing at all, but I think it's a compatibility thing. And when we're talking about the dating process, it is really important to be transparent about that too. Like for instance, like a lot of clients ask me like, you know, well, when should I bring up like sexual compatibility? I'm like, I, I have conversations about sex on the first or second date because it's important to me. And it's not to make someone uncomfortable. I won't like probe that if it makes them uncomfortable, but like, it's a part of like me being connected with someone, right? If like they're, they're not in that, they're not in their own sexual power. If they don't know what their kinks are, if they don't know what they're into, if they're, you know, still very much understanding themselves that way, it's just not the right match for me personally, but there's someone else that's on that wavelength, you know, for them as well too. So, and I think it's also like, you know, for, for lack of a better word, like just not learning not to take things personally as we sift through a lot of different human beings to find someone that we're, you know, at a base level compatible with. But I think you, you brought up an interesting point about your partner, because I feel like I completely echo that sentiment where, you know, I think for, for many women, not all, cause I have some female friends that, that honestly, I feel like maybe they more have more of that masculine energy. I, I hate to like sort of genderize the polarities of energy because it doesn't have that much to do with that. But I think that a lot of women tend to, you know, feel much more, deeply connected after sex after the initial sex not all the time but and i think because of that 
it seems to be quite harder, even speaking from female clients, to have sex with someone and not be attached. And I think that's where that transparency and honesty and accepting someone's truth comes in, right? Because it's not necessarily a case where someone doesn't want to be with you if they don't just want to rush into connection. Sometimes it is someone just avoiding as well too, right? I want to shine light on both situations. But I think that, you know, we we sort of fall in love at different levels. And for me, I've always been the person like, or the man that immediately after I sleep with someone, if I'm really into them, all of a sudden, like two months later, we find ourselves in a relationship, you know, and I wouldn't go through the process of dating. And the process of dating is getting to know them on all these levels deeply to say, okay, yes, this person's good enough for me. I'm good enough for them. Awesome. Let's like, let's try this exclusivity thing. And again, I'm just speaking about monogamy here, but Kiana, I'm curious from your perspective, because I'm, I'm sure you deal in this, like in this world, like there's there's a whole lot of polyamory, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy coming up and interjecting into the relational. Not that this is a new thing. This has been around, you know, since the Greek Roman days, even before then, right? And I'm curious, do you think that, you know, do you think this is, is a response, like a trauma response in society? Do you think that this is indeed a way that we can relate and have healthy, deep, connective relationships? Do we have the capacity? And, you know, I'm, I'm curious in your perspective of these varying relationships because my my mind and my sort of um, understanding has changed a lot as I've sort of sifted through my own internal bias with my own how, I've, how I was raised and religion, how I was raised, believing that monogamy is the way to love someone. And it's quite intriguing because now when I work with people from all over the world, from all different types of relational backgrounds, people that are exploring new things, I'm like, huh. I, I'm, I wonder if we're, if we're all, you know, meant to be monogamous or simply we're just not. There might not be one clear answer to it. And I I think I'm of two minds. I think it is entirely possible to have very healthy, very honest, transparent dynamics within a polyamorous dynamic. Um, And at the same time, like our level of, society like as a society as a whole it's a generalization but our level of ability to take full ownership to communicate not just about our own emotions and to take responsibility about them but to be ruthlessly fucking honest and sit in the face of discomfort is not at an all-time high i'd say it needs a lot of practice in general and so for me to think like as a society wide, we would need to be at a particular level of interpersonal communication for that to be something that was like a very functional, healthy dynamic for people as a whole. Um, I think we need a lot more work in that realm because people don't even know how to talk about sex, let alone like manage jealousy, manage that kind of stuff. Some people do and they're very well studied and they will tell you it's a lot of work and it's a lot of emotions. And so there, there's like one realm of it. And the other is I think like people, I do think there might be a general fear of intimacy as a response to a hyper monogamous dogma that we're coming out of. Like we're a few generations out of like marriage is the way, you know, women were owned, like marriage is the thing you stay in your whole life. Religion owned us too. And so there's a natural response to like not want that and not to be forced to stay into something. So I think there's like a, there's a healthy adjustment happening and yet any relationship you're in, not even just romantic relationship, like your best friendships, your best relationships, your best dynamics are the ones that are very deep, very honest, 
very real. And um, they do require time, presence, attention, and input. And I like in for me, that's why I'm in a monogamous relationship. I could see other times in my life it being really enjoyable to explore polyamory. But monogamy gives us the opportunity not to like jump out when we're not getting a particular need met. And it gives us the opportunity to work that edge with someone. And sometimes I think what happens in people's um, desire for polyamory is they're not getting a need met within a relationship and they don't know how to address it. And they don't want to leave that relationship. So they're trying to solve it by bringing other people in. And I don't think that's the solution. Um, so maybe for some people it is, but uh, you, yep. I, I have to say, I think you're spot on with all this. I, um, you know, I think that that need, if, if we kind of narrow it down a little bit, it usually has a lot to do with the sex, you know, that I think, I think a lot, not all the times, but sex and intimacy combined, like, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, I want to start seeing other people, but they still really love the person they're with. And there's a lot of incredible attributes to that relationship. A lot of times there's a disconnection sexually. Right. And, and I think a lot of clients bring up, they're like, well, can, can I ever be satisfied by one person? You know, they, and I, and I, in my mind, I'm like, well, it depends on the compatibility with that person. Because like, when I go back to like being in your sexual power, like if someone's in their sexual power, yes, absolutely. You know, but that has to exist alongside emotional compatibility, intellectual compatibility, right? Physical attraction, right? Um, there's all these other things that line up. And I think as, as a culture, we confuse that with perfection. We're looking for someone that checks all the boxes and it's really not about that. It's about someone that's able to work and grow in those areas with you and you kind of start at the same baseline level in those important areas to you because everyone has different deal breakers, right? For me, sex is very important. For some people, it's not as important. I understand that too, right? Um, and and I think that depending on where you fall in that spectrum, it's, it comes with the level of self-knowledge. You have to have studied yourself or not enough, excuse me, to know really what's important to you in, in a relational sense, you know? And I think we can go back to those old tropes of like, when you're on, when you're like on a dating profile, like, oh, I like log walks on the beach and dogs, right? And in my mind, it's like, yeah, those are, those are the fucking obvious things, right? I want to know who you are, what you're looking for and what you're offering. And that's quite hard to convey in the first one to two dates, unless you really already have done some deep work and know who you are and, and know, you know, the shit you're coming with, but also like the beauty it took to overcome that. Yeah. I would also say it doesn't just require you to have self-knowledge about the obvious parts of yourself, the conscious parts of yourself, but it would require some level of knowledge about the unconscious parts of yourself, your habits and your patterns. Cause that's, really where we rub up against each other the most in relationship is when we're not getting our needs met. Like what happens when my needs aren't getting met? What happens when jealousy comes up? What happens um, when you do something that hurts my feelings and how do I respond? And that's not easy for people to identify. Like their patterns are not easy for them to identify. So unless you're doing like an ongoing excavation of that, it's hard even within the first six months to a year to know that about someone because really what you're running into is like childhood programming and how you were raised and how your parents responded to you and your core wounds. And like, that's what relationship is here to teach us, you know, deep, deep 
committed relationship is here to bring all that shit up with the opportunity to help adjust and repair and meet each other's nervous systems in a way that can, you know, heal us. I really want to play this, this, uh, this, this reel you did on pussy magic, because I just think like, I think what you say is so applicable to everybody, you know? And so maybe, maybe I just play that really quick and we can kind of talk about it. And I'd love to talk about like how, how we get to that point, you know, how we, how we get to that point of feeling like that about ourselves and our body and how we share that with somebody else. So maybe I just play that really quick if that's cool. Okay. Awesome. magic really is pussy magic is being in love with the way that you look the way that you taste the way that you feel the way that you smell and knowing that your lover does too it is being able to relax and fully receive endlessly without getting in your head about how long you're taking or how you look and pussy magic is being able to fully feel every micro movement every sensation even in stillness your body is full of pleasure pussy magic is being able to turn yourself on and feel your desire in any moment that you choose. Pussy magic is being able to fully feel the pleasure and the power in your vulva, in your vagina, in your cervix, in your womb. And pussy magic is experiencing that deep emotional connection between your heart and your pussy and letting every emotion that comes up during a sexual experience fully emerge and fully express. Pussy magic is the recognition that our sexual expression and pleasure is so powerful that it has been systematically denied to us by religious beliefs, cultural oppression, government legislation, and generations of internalized shame. And it is and generations of internalized shame. And at its core, pussy magic is reclaiming our fullest selves. It's about being a full human and not continuing to cut ourselves off from the most potent source of power and pleasure and self-knowledge that we have in our bodies. So that, that is beautiful. Sorry, my, my phone just like gave me the thing where it's like about to die and then it cut out really quickly, but hopefully everyone could hear that. Um, and I think obviously you're focusing on women there, but I think this applies to men as well too, although obviously we experience sensation and orgasm differently, but there's, there's a ton of men. I mean, I know like many women think that the experience is so, is so different and in many ways it is, but in some ways it's not. There's a lot of men that deal with body shame throughout their life, right? There's the penis size thing there's what they look like physically, like there's the ability to grow facial hair, all these other things, right? How tall they are. All these things are judged with society, just like women are, women are judged. And obviously the societal oppression is different, but there's obviously when we bring race in context too, and socioeconomic strata and all these things that affect how we're raised and how we sort of are, are exist in society from a young age, it affects our view of self. It affects our self-confidence. It affects our self-love, right? Um, and I'm curious, like for for all of us trying to get to that space where you can feel fully embodied, feel fully rooted, have sex connected with someone else, not judge yourself, fully let go. I think a lot of times we put the the onus on the other, right? We're like, well, I have this person has to make me feel safe for me to, for me to be able to let go. And although I think that's a portion of it, I think the pro- primary work is inside it's 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 i have to create a safe space for myself and therefore then i find a, another safe space within another because i don't attract someone that's going to make me feel unsafe because i know who i am right and I, I you know how do we get to that point within the self to feel you know able to to let go fully release and and be in that um i think that 
you know, the thing that I point to in that reel at the end is the, that we are really carrying the embodiment of generations of sexual shame, societal shame, cultural shame, religious shame around our eroticism. And so it's a collective thing that we take on when we say like, I'm going to do this work for myself, for my own, obviously my own experience so that it's better, but also so that I can show up for those who come into the bedroom with me and I'm more available to, in a, in a sense, like hold the space so that they can experience a fuller experience of themselves and for future generations. You know, if I have children for, you know, I do this work for my mother who experienced, you know, sexual abuse in her early years. And so I think that it's a, it's a really important question you're asking and it, it takes a lifetime of work, right? Like I'm saying all of these beautiful things on that video, but like I'm on that journey also. And I've been on that journey for my whole life, but like really intentionally for over a decade. And so going into spaces that offer deep embodiment work around your eroticism, going into spaces that really know how to work with shame. Cause shame is the thing like that. I think when we talk about shame, usually people associate the experience of shame with the feeling of shame and shame. I had a beautiful teacher. Her name's Ellen Heed. And she said to me once like shame wears a thousand faces. And it does because shame doesn't always appear as this feeling of like, oh, I feel ashamed of my body or, oh, I feel embarrassed. It actually can involute, turn inwards and like become projection onto other people, can become disgust in our system. It can become disinterest. It can become all of these, these other things that you would never identify as shame. And so I think really going in and seeking and understanding like what are your core beliefs about your body, not just your conscious beliefs, your unconscious beliefs, what are your habits sexually, where are the spaces that I can go and really plant myself firmly in my body, in my genitals, understand how they work and start to decouple what I was taught from my friends, my family, my early experiences in society as a whole, the things I've internalized and bring them into the light so I can actually say like, that's not me. That's an inherited belief and create a new neural pathway, a new way of relating with our body. And for some people that can happen pretty quickly, you know, can happen with like a self-pleasure practice where they, you start to masturbate and maybe you never had a relationship with your body like that before. And suddenly in the middle of masturbation, you hear the voices of like, oh, this is disgusting or I have to be quiet or this is shameful or I shouldn't be doing this in a relationship. And those are the moments where you're starting to identify your internalized shame. And so I would say that's part one. It's like, just start to investigate this relationship with yourself personally. And then as you start to identify, oh, here's another piece of shame in my life. Here's another way shame shows up. You know, here's another way I close down sexually when I'm alone or with a partner. Then getting the support of the collective. So like, like I said, entering spaces, going to find teachers who are working in this space, going to find communities that are working towards pulling at the threads of this because it is a collective experience. And unless we're doing it collectively, it really can't be done individually. You know, we, we impact each other that much. The way we speak about these things, the way we interact with each other really impacts um, in, a, in a deep way. And so that's, I think, the starting point and I can get more specific if you have questions about that. 
Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a good, that's a good general starting point. I feel like, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful you say that this is a lifelong work because it really is. It's like, you don't go to therapy or counseling or you don't work with somatic sex educators or for a year and then you think you're all good. Right. And it's not like you have to still work with the same person, but you're continuously evolving. You, you brought this up earlier in the show, like evolution doesn't wait on our timeline, right? It's happening right now. And I think that, you know, we're either on the bus or we're not, we can sit there and watch it pass us by, or we can sort of try to find ways that we are also growing, you know, and there's also has to be periods of like rest and acceptance. And I, I asked Mark Groves this when he was on the show too. It's, it's really interesting because there's this balance of like personal growth and also enjoying who you are too, right? And and walking that tightrope is really hard because we we're in this like capitalistic, like driven, results oriented society where it's like, well, I have to, you know, basically produce, produce, produce. Um, which we're not really meant, we're not designed to do that all the time. Yes, we, we can be productive, we should be productive, we should be growing, but we also have to have time to enjoy who we are in the moment too. And I think a lot of people get hung up on like, well, how can both of those truths be true at the same time, right? How can I appreciate and love who I am, but also look at the things I need to work on and be, you know, be on a trajectory that's, and I'm like, well, both of those truths, in fact, can be true and are true at the same time if you are working on both of them, right? I mean, you still have to be working on being present, loving who who you are, but also working on improving these other areas. I, I think you speak to something that's so important. It's the culture of striving, right? It's that it's the strive that gives us our value. It's what we're doing that gives us our value. It's the, you know, self-work that we're doing that gives us our value. And as much as I love um, spaces of wellness and spaces of like collective personal growth, they're invaluable and so important. There's also this subtle message that happens is like that we always need to improve ourselves in order to be lovable, And this is also like, this comes up a lot in the dating world of like, you have to heal all your wounds before you're ready to like be in a relationship. And I just don't think that's true. I think if you're taking steps towards recognizing what's in your way and you're taking steps towards what self-love like truly means, self-acceptance truly means and being so fucking compassionate towards yourself and what you've inherited. Like if you can sit in that space, then you'll naturally just be filled with the kind of love for yourself that will show you, oh, here's my next little curiosity. Here's my next step towards being a, you know, more full, free version of who I already am. But when we think of it as like bettering the self or like having to do all this work, we end up in the same capitalistic, you know, hamster wheel of striving. And like, that doesn't work in relationship either. That just teaches ourselves and our partners that they, that we have to continually be better to be deserving of love. And I'm not a fan of that message at all. Yeah. I think I can get stuck in that honestly too, because I'm, I'm such a type A person. And, and I think just like with my background, I I always want to be doing something better. I think it's also just about background being an athlete, but also just being like a you know, perfectionist, if you will, in school and education and the culture I was raised up in. And it wasn't like there was like that pressure put on me as a child, but I think I put that pressure on myself because I saw like people that were successful behave like that. Right. And, and you, obviously you learn through that way. And I think I can even, 
echo the sentiments in my past relationships where, you know, they, you know, they didn't work out for a handful of reasons, but, but one of the things that I own having gone through therapy is that I put a, an incredible amount of pressure on, uh, past, past, uh, you know, partners to, to be better, to meet me in deeper ways versus understanding like that the dating process was a lot more important than I initially thought it was and understanding where my, I was compatible with them from the beginning. Right. And not getting into a relationship where I consistently felt like I was having to pull someone up, whether it be emotionally or intellectually, you know, I wanted someone to, I wanted to learn from someone else too. I wanted someone else to be able to teach me as well too. And it's important to, I think, understand, well, I don't think I, I feel understand, you know, where you are compatible and what levels you're compatible with someone. So that way you can enter into not feeling like, Oh, I need this person to change immediately. You know, you shouldn't want someone to change that you're like in a deep relationship with, you know, obviously you both grow on your own accord, but I think like that requisite coming from another person of like, Oh, this person's perfect. If they were to just change this thing about themselves, I'm like, it doesn't really work out like that. Right. We have to be accepting. You know what I mean too? It's like, well, they can, they can check all the boxes, but this one glaring thing they do whether like they don't open up about their feelings or maybe we don't uh, connect with kissing or we don't have you know connected sex or whatever it can be something like that and then we overlook this because all the other things are there which which I find intriguing because it goes back to you know I don't know what the answer is and obviously we're not looking for perfect but I think there has to be a baseline compatibility where we're not looking to change the person immediately but also we need to be able to check our own egos because I feel like a lot of times we're going to want to change everybody because a lot of times we're looking to date the mirror, meaning we're looking to date ourselves because it's easier because, well, I understand myself completely and that's that's ne- that's never how it's going to work out with actual relating because you're with someone else, a human being with completely different experiences, a completely different childhood, right? And part of that process of building intimacy is understanding that. Yeah. And this is where it gets really interesting is like why we choose people. Because on a conscious level, if you go in and you're clear, like I, I'm a big fan of getting clear about your like top five dating needs, top five relational needs and getting really super clear about what they are. And that will just help you guide, you know, like, yes, this is a viable relationship for me. And like, no, this is not. But beyond that, the emotional choice of choosing a partner often comes from our unmet childhood needs and wounds and our own patterns, right? And we're attempting to either get a particular type of love that feels familiar, that feels like, you know, reminiscent of what love was shown to us when we were children, or we are trying to fix the things in our partners that we continually disown or dislike about ourselves or where we don't feel like an example of this. Um, in my like mid twenties, I was always dating people who subconsciously I felt were more powerful than me where I like would get, I don't want to say like social status from it, but they had more power in the room. They had more charisma. Like they had more, um, magnetism. And by dating them, I then became more powerful, more charismatic, more interesting, et cetera. That was like the shadow around it, right? Like consciously, I would have never, ever, ever identified that pattern. But looking back, I can see like, oh, I'm drawn to like a very high level of magnetism and social charisma and power. And that's because like, I didn't feel the power and agency in myself. 
And is that a quality I now appreciate in people and desire? Yes. But is it like a thing that like draws me in that's a little bit, um, like it, like it feels so intense in the connection that I'm like, Oh, I need that. Like that's where you start to notice like, Oh, that's my karma. That's my patterning. Those are my subconscious beliefs either about myself or the way that I experience love that's showing up again and how I choose a partner. And so I think that mm-hmm. there's so many layers that go into how we choose someone. And it's really interesting to investigate, not just on the conscious level, but like, how am I bringing my childhood patterns into this? How am I bringing my subconscious beliefs into this? And where am I putting those on this person to change so that I don't have to? Hmm. Do you think a lot of those childhood patterns influence like how we attach though after sex as well too? Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, that's why it's always hard for me to answer like, you know, because we were talking about earlier, you know, how women tend to get attached more after sex. And I'm like, I wonder if, if some of that attachment is due to childhood beliefs and self-limited beliefs. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, for example, if we're going to take attachment theory and I have some anxious avoidant attachment in my system. Um, mm-hmm. And what has felt in the past the best to my nervous system is being a little bit in chase towards someone where they're a little bit unavailable because it allows me not to be like totally consumed by someone's love, which is really scary to me. It's overwhelming to me. (laughs) But when they pull too far away, I get really, really anxious and it's frightening to me. And so that is a direct mirror of relationship with my dad and my parents and my early childhood experiences. And so, yeah, we're like, we're always bringing that in and our attachment styles are always available for healing, especially within partnership, because that again is the deepest opportunity for nervous system repair is when we can know that about our partners and how to hold the space for the anxious, how to hold the space for the avoidant, how to be the secure attachment, how to facilitate that, that level of intelligence allows for the other person like our generosity in that space allows for the other person to become a more full version of themselves and to experience a kind of safety then then allows them to be the kind of person we would want to date in the first place and so it's like it's just funny how we get locked into these dynamics where we're like it's them you know and it's really how what of of myself am i bringing into this that is creating this dynamic yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is just all coming back full circle to just having self-knowledge. I mean, you say that in the, in, in that clip, right. And I use that word a lot, uh, or that term a lot. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, I think they get to a certain level of self-knowledge and they, they think that they've just, they've done it, you know, and that's just not the case. Like you're consistently learning things about yourself. I mean, it, every relationship I get into, I learn so much more about myself than the previous one. And it compounds because I catch myself in my own shit again, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm doing that same thing again that I said it was probably because of the other person last time. And now I have proof that it's not. It's actually because me, you know, I'm not to say that the person that I'm dancing with in that in that relational space isn't uh, contributing to that in some way, but the actual like reaction or the experience that I'm having is mine to own. Right. And I think that a lot of times we get into this sort of very, very woke, woke culture where we we read a lot of books and we, and we see a lot of things on the internet and then we start using these terms 
and then all of a sudden we're good. And it's just not how it works because we can, you know, words merely describe the experience. Like language is beautiful, but I think, you know, for lack of a better word, the only thing that really gets close to describing the human experience is really music because it's like, it can be felt, there's no, it's like universal language, right? And so when we use words to describe experiences, well, we get really good at talking about things, but then we don't really get at feeling the things, you know? And I, I can certainly speak to that as a man, like when, when someone first, I don't know when I first heard the word somatic, but when I heard that word, and I was like, huh, like when I started to think about anger and how I express anger and where I sort of, where I feel anger is like, I never really thought about where I feel it in my body. You know, it was always like, I'm fucking angry. You know, I'm angry because of this. And and then I got to really start to understand, oh, I actually feel where I'm angry at and where I hold stress and specifically with like the injuries that I've experienced as an athlete and how those changed my life. You know, it really, I really got to know myself a lot better on that way, you know, for, for better or for worse. Cause I, I started to focus now on those areas being again, like hypercritical of like, oh, this is, you know, this is where I'm experiencing this, this emotion and whatnot. But I think that I feel like women are better at that, uh, based on society, allowing them to step into that space more freely. Um, but I think that hopefully, and I feel like this more men are being called in that space not because it emasculates you, but because it actually helps you redefine your masculinity, you know, because you, you are, you're able to understand like why you're having a feeling. And instead of expressing it like, uh, viciously, you're able to understand and express it and communicate it. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of times we talk about the shadow or the toxic, toxic masculinity or shadow masculinity, but a lot of times toxic femininity isn't spoken about. And, and, there's always two sides of a coin, right? Like, like both of these polarities exist and we have to understand both of them and how they exist within ourselves to actually grow as a complete human being. Because if I just look at toxic masculine traits, well, I'm not shedding light on the other, the other side of the coin too, right? And that also has to do with positive, healthy masculine traits and healthy feminine traits that, you know, we all embody to different level, right? Different degree. Um, but I think to kind of, to kind of loop this back in, I feel like we can, we can hone in a lot on terminology, on words, on using, you know, using language to sort of say like, well, I'm in therapy and I'm working on my codependency and I was dating a narcissist and I am working on this. And at, at some level, we have to put it into practice. We have to stop focusing on the books and the media and we have to put it into practice. And that is the harder part. It's hard enough to make the jump to learn about oneself and to start to read different stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable and stuff that brings up childhood trauma and stuff that makes you feel uneasy. But then when you get past that phase, it's like, well, now there's a period of application, which I find a lot of people get stuck in because it's really hard. It's like, okay, well, I've gone to therapy. Now, how do I change my life? And it's like, well, the thing is, it's a process of catching yourself in behaviors over and over again and tweaking them slightly and giving yourself a chance to rest. And then over time, patterns change. And as human beings, we're patterned animals, you know? I mean, it, we if, if, you, if you have relational things that keep coming up, chances are those are patterns that are peaking up, right? And we have to seek to understand those patterns, and then we seek to understand the roots, and then we can kind of sort of change them or regrow them, if you will. But it's not easy. You know, I think in society, we're so, well, I guess take a pill. I'm depressed, so take a pill. I have anxiety, I'm taking a pill. I'm like, well, to actually change that experience we have to understand where it's coming from and change the relationship to where it's coming from which is a lot harder of work right and, but it's possible it's incredibly possible but it's a lot harder it's a heavier lift right and it's and it's a longer 
term outlook on life versus a shorter term band-aid, you know? And I think the, the unfortunate thing about our current culture is that everything is immediate gratification, whether it's pornography, whether it's social media, whether it's whatever, we just want it and we want it now. And that is not how growth, real growth works. It just does not work like that. Growth. Yeah. Growth reveals like in my mind, growth reveals to you how much growth there is, you know, and that it's infinite. And I want to speak to something you were talking about. It's the over intellect, the over intellectualization of our problems and thinking that our intellectualization of them can solve them. And the mind is an incredible tool. Our brains are so smart and so wise, and they can only take us so far when it comes to healing the connection between the body, mind, you know, the nervous system, the things that we've experienced holistically, not just in our thinking selves. And you know, really that's, that's the work of embodiment. That's the work of the entire field of somatics is understanding how the body holds experience, how the body holds memory. And a lot of people talk about the body and mind as a separate thing. Like they're not separate. They work together. They're a team. Like it's an integrated, you know, we're not going to like separate them from each other, but the way we approach our understanding is often through our mental faculties And this woman that I I really love, I forget her name, but she is doing a lot of education around um, somatics on Instagram. I think it's womb wisdom and her name's Veronica. Um, But she said something that like really moved me. And it was that having an awareness of a feeling, which is basically our mind, like understanding we're having the experience of an emotion is not the same as feeling a feeling. And ultimately, when we're talking about habits and patterns and, you know, toxic feminine, toxic masculine, it's a lack of consciousness about what's happening in our body and a lack of consciousness about the impact on others. And that comes down to, in my opinion, the nervous system, because any impulsivity that we have, any urgency that we have, any freeze or fawning that we're having is a survival mechanism from something that we experienced much younger. So when we're doing work around the nervous system and work in embodiment and work in somatics, what it's doing is it's giving spaciousness to our reactivity. It's giving spaciousness to our patterns and our wounding so that they can actually be fully felt and experienced instead of, you know, shoved down or being like, well, you can't cry about that or don't feel sad or, you know, like zip it up. Gives the space for it to exist and find a completion naturally so that as we move forward, we're not coming from a place of this is back here and this experience is back here and this is all coloring my current day experience. It allows us to be so much more present with what's happening in the moment. Um, yeah, and I don't think I have more to add to it, but just like wanted to drop that seed that the over-intellectualization is, is a point, a really beautiful starting point in healing, but it's not the end-all be-all. Absolutely. I think one thing that comes up for me is like the difference between rage and anger, right? Like, like anger can be experienced, but rage can only really be expressed, you know? And I think that that's like this hill you get over. A lot of times we confuse rage with anger where we get so angry and we haven't been hurt or we haven't expressed ourselves multitude of reasons. Right. And then we get to this rage point and rage is where we sort of hurt other people that we probably care about deeply um, and just like let, you know, it's like we all bubble up and let, let this thing out, whether you, you let it out through physical screaming, physical violence, like, uh, you know, manipulation. There's a lot of different ways rage is expressed. 
But rage was a survival mechanism or is a survival mechanism for us to survive, right? It serves a purpose when we're in a life or death situation. It's a very human quality. But in relationships, not a good idea, you know? Uh, but we end up going that route because we either feel unheard, unloved, or we don't love ourselves. Or we're not hearing ourselves, right? Not expressing ourselves. There's a lot of different ways to, to, to get to that point. But I think if we can tap into experiencing the emotion or experience, whether it be rage, sad, or sorry, anger, loneliness, sadness, right? Uh, you know, whatever, even if it's joy, we have to also be in a safe container to be able to express that and be seen and heard. And I think that is where people fall into, you know, let's say they're growing in a relationship, but their partner, um, you know, is, 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 let's, for lack of a better word, the same that they entered them with. And they get to this point where it's like, well, I'm starting to express myself now, but nothing's changing. And sometimes it comes down to the point where, well, maybe that person's just not the person for you, you know? And I'm all for sticking in relationships 100%, but both people have to be willing to work on it and step into that container of doing that work individually, each other, and bringing it back in to the relational container. And if they don't, it can feel very one-sided, you know, and I feel like people will stay in those relationships making excuses consistently and then feeling miserable and and quite frankly, feeling even more lonely than they would feel if they were actually alone and not in a relationship and single because they're with someone that they love, but they don't feel seen or heard or understood. Yeah, big time. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, we're just a bunch of bodies filled with past experiences that are bumping into each other. And when we get close to someone, a lot of our past experiences are influencing how we're perceiving that. And, you know, the, the more we can see, like, I'm, I'm definitely with you on, you go all in on relationship. You stay with it for as long as it makes sense. You have a really you know, clear focus on where it's going. And if it comes to the point where you both agree to part ways, that's beautiful because you've both been all in. And instead of seeing it as both people are 50% responsible for how the relationship's going, it's actually both people are 100% responsible. And when you have that perspective, you continually point the finger back at yourself. What am I bringing into this relational moment that's impacting and making this same fucking thing that I've dealt with my whole life show up? And you'll start to see like all of the way, like when I want my partner to be doing something different, anytime I get that kind of like urge to just be a little like, "Mm," you know, like don't do it like that, change it, you know, the, the intense bother that I get is not because of what he's actually doing. It's because of my full association with what that means And that's my work to unpack and not put on him, right? And Mm -hmm. in that way, when you start to identify, like, here's our areas of growth, it's not, this is the area of growth I'm identifying or needing from you. It's a real collective, like, here's where we get to grow together. And both people come to the table with the, their, their needs being like, here's my core needs in relationship. Here's where we get to grow. And I think that's a, a really nice reframing of like, you know, cause it, it's going to happen where people are like, I'm growing, but my partner is not. That's like one of the biggest things yeah. in relationships that's really challenging is like, I'm a super dynamic person. I'm always growing. I'm always changing. And I need that from my partner. Well, then that's actually in your core list of needs. That's your top five. Like, 
I need growth. I need continual growth. And that is a top need for me. So I know right from the get-go that I'm not going to end up in relationship with someone who doesn't have that as one of their like core qualities. Otherwise Mm -hmm. we're just dumping our needs onto someone who's not going to be able to meet them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So before I let you go, Ken, I want to ask one more question is that a lot of folks, they'll have a great sexual relationship up until these things come in their lives called kids. And that for a lot of people changes their intimacy, right? And it brings in a whole lot of love, right? It brings in a whole lot of other benefit things. But a lot of people ask like, well, well, you know, all of a sudden we stop sleeping together or we don't have time to sleep together or we feel too exhausted, which I can completely understand. But in my mind, I don't have kids yet. Uh, I think that it's really important for couples to still retain that time to be intimate with each other, right? Because it isn't just all about your kids. Like if you are healthier, if you are happier and healthier, you are going to be a better parent, right? And it's not to say that there isn't a portion of you're going to feel exhausted with a newborn. I completely understand that. But I think that a lot of times we'll use that as an excuse to like not put into our partner because we'll be strapped at work or we'll be strapped being a parent, a new parent, right? And I'm curious, like what are, I guess what are some words of advice you give couples that, you know, are just, you know, just had kids or or have young kids and they're seeing a dip in their intimacy. They're seeing a dip in the amount of sex they're having together. Like how do we retain that and still show up as, as parents and human beings? This is such a great question. Um, the first would be if it's in the first two years of having a kid statistically, it just is shown that that's one of the most challenging moments in a sex life for a couple because of the amount of energy that an infant requires it, 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 I have two kids and I know I've been through it twice. Like it really requires so much of you. And for mothers in particular, it requires so much from our bodies. There's such massive hormonal shifts that happen. There's so much re, um, re knitting of our identity that happens in those early years. And so like, if there's ever a time to be generous with your partner, not in terms of like forgetting your needs or sweeping them under the carpet, but really like as a couple being generous about how hard it is, that's the moment. Because what will take intimacy away the most is when we start to blame each other for not getting our needs met. And there's this tussle like, well, we're not having sex because you're too tired or you're libido or whatever. It's like, we're in this together and I'm fucking tired and you're fucking tired and where can we find each other? So that commitment to generosity is super important, especially those first two years. The second is, is this is where um, attraction becomes practice because like we're so used to relying on attraction and chemistry in our sexual dynamic that we don't see that it's actually a, a spiritual practice, an emotional practice. And to carve out the time for intimacy, to be a masterful um, to have masterful awareness of the, the time and the space in your life to create spaces where intimacy can actually happen intentionally is such a huge gift to your partner for both people. But if there's some person who's primarily taking care of the child or the other partner to say, what does my partner need to be able to enter a space of sexual intimacy? Probably time by herself, a bath in a clean house so that she can set those things aside. Cool. I'm going to help set that up. Baby, you go take a nap. I got the kids. I'm going to cook dinner for the night. Like take 10. 
that level of awareness is what it takes to really set a foundation for trust that you're understanding how to meet each other's needs. And same for, you know, someone like I'm just talking about myself as a mom, but to have gone through the experience of having like no libido or very low libido or extremely exhausted and looking at like, where is my commitment? Is my commitment to my sleep right now, which is really important. Where is my commitment to taking 20 minutes of finding the deepest intimacy and sexual connection that we can? It might not mean having sex. It might mean making out. It might be a back rub. It might be a hand job. It might be a blow job. It might be receiving oral sex. It might just be some naked rolling around this. But really creating spaces where intimacy can be explored and both people's needs can be met is crucial for the relationship to feel nourishing for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is like communicating where you're at as well too. Right. I think that's huge and being able to be heard. Um, but I appreciate how you bring up like the sort of connecting isn't just climaxing either. Right. I think that's, you bring that, especially with people who are busy, like there's, there's a myriad of ways to connect. And I feel like, you know, communicate, you start a communication and so many people, you know, they, they start to try to communicate sexually too late in the relationship where I feel like you have to start working on this, you know, early in early stages. So you can understand these because it makes, understand these needs because it makes it a lot easier. I feel like when you bring kids into the, and on, onto the planet that you can already be on that level of communication where it's like, okay, I know, you know, we can talk about this, like, you know, what she needs, what I need, you know, vice versa. Um, and so I appreciate you, you bringing that up because I think for a lot of people, they, they think it has to be like this whole production and, you know, we have to, you know, sleep with each other for an hour or two or this. And it's just like, no, it doesn't really have to be that. There's other ways to connect, but I think you still have to work towards those things and also be able to honor when you, like you said, when you do need to take care of yourself, when you do need to sleep better, when you can't just be there in that capacity, but this pendulum does have to swing back, right? We can't just stay on that vibe of like, well, I'm too exhausted to deal with this. We have to confront, we have to communicate, you know, and, and we have to, you know, get on some same page and some same wave, wavelength because that is the process of relating. Right. And just because we bring children in the world doesn't mean we stop relating. So, okay. <laughs> Kiana, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I honestly could talk to you for hours. I feel like there's so much, we, so many rabbit holes we could go down, but uh, it's just, you know, blessing to be able to spend some time with you and hear about your work and hear about your perspective. And can you tell the listeners where they can go, where they can find you, how they can look you up if they want to work yeah, with you? Absolutely. Um, the easiest way to find me in what I'm offering right now is my website. It's Kiana Reeves.com K I A N A R E E V E S. And then my Instagram is probably where I'm doing the most education and I do Q and A's where you can send in your question and I'll respond to them. And that's just at, Kiana Reeves. Awesome. You know, it's, it's crazy how your name is so know, close to I Kiana know, Reeves' name. It's just like when, cause when I remember when I typed it in my phone, I was like, Oh, that, that looks just totally. like Kiana yeah. Reeves. Um, Welcome so, to my life. But 37 years of yeah. Kiana yeah. Reeves jokes. Not, not yeah. a bad person to be associated with though. Um, so, okay. Well, Kiana, thank you so much again for joining me. Um, yeah, I just, it's, it's been a blessing to chat with you and I hope I can have you back on at some point. Yeah, I would love that. It'd be great. Thanks for having me. So what can I do but stay true? Trying to keep everything balanced, trying to hold on to our faith, trying to keep a grip on our hope, trying to hold on to our joy, trying to hold on to our peace.
up again We was young and we was dumb But we had heart In the dark when we survived through the bad fall apart and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart and